Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Lord God, we ask that you would help us to hear your holy word, and in hearing it, understand it, and in understanding it, believe it, and in believing it, that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking to honor you and glory you in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. So moving into chapter 4 this morning, I really want to hang these thoughts on two main points. One is Christ as our sympathetic substitute. And the second is Christ as our sympathetic example. Our sympathetic substitute and our sympathetic example. And when I say that, I think it's especially important, and this is a temptation, I think, that creeps up often in this story in particular, the temptation of Jesus. I think the temptation is to often think of the story as primarily an example. This is how to face temptation if you are a believer in Christ. And yes, I think that is part of the story. This is the perfect example and we'll touch on that, but that's not all there is. This is not just a moralistic story. I think more importantly, and the more overarching way to understand this, is primarily as Christ as a sympathetic substitute. And you'll remember, we've seen this already in the opening chapters of Matthew. Matthew has gone to great lengths to identify Jesus with the people he came to save. That's where it's, you start to get hints of this idea of a substitute. And of course, this is all fleshed out as you go into the New Testament and further into the Gospels. Christ becomes the substitute who provides our righteousness. Christ becomes a substitute who takes the penalty of death that we deserve to pay for our sin. But Matthew is cueing that up in these opening chapters by clearly identifying Jesus with the sinners that he came to save clearly identifying Jesus with Israel and the fulfillment of all that Israel was supposed to be, but turned out they couldn't be. 
identifying Him with us as sinners and all that we are supposed to be, but turns out we can't be, He becomes that for us. That's the point of these fulfillment formulas that we've been seeing just in these opening chapters. Matthew's making a real point. You look back at the Old Testament, you look at the prophecies of the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills those. You look back at the events of the Old Testament, and then you look at these opening chapters in Matthew, and you see Jesus retracing carefully the major events in Israel's history. Why is he doing that? Well, it's to identify Jesus as the Israel that Israel couldn't be. He is their substitute. So he opens up in chapter 1, verse 1, very clearly says, This Jesus, he's the son of Abraham. He, he is the seed of Israel. He is Israel. And then where they go, he goes. Jesus retraces Israel's steps, fleeing to Egypt. Israel flees to Egypt. Jesus flees to Egypt. Israel shelters from death in Egypt. Jesus shelters from death in Egypt. Israel's delivered from Egypt. Jesus is delivered from Egypt. You're seeing this in these opening chapters. Uh, Israel goes through an exodus. They pass through the waters of the Red Sea. Jesus, we saw last week, goes through a mini exodus, passing through the waters of baptism. What happens on the other side of this exodus? You remember Israel goes into the wilderness for 40 years. What happens in our passage this morning? Jesus comes through this mini exodus as a substitute Israel, and he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. You see what Matthew is doing here? He is clearly wanting to send the message that Jesus is a sympathetic substitute. But then you remember when Israel entered into the promised land, they were supposed to eradicate their enemies. They didn't. They failed to do it. They couldn't do it. They refused to do it. But here's where you start to see this perfect substitute and he's getting it right. Because Jesus goes into this 40-day wilderness experience. He also is confronted with an enemy. But where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. And he begins here as his public ministry is launching to send the signal. He has come once and for all to put to death death itself, to put to death Satan himself, to put to death sin itself. And he is and he will be victorious. That's what you see in the passage this morning as our substitute. So don't think of the story as primarily as an example. We want to think of it primarily as Jesus presented as a substitute. And as he comes to this time of temptation... The real question is, how is he going to save his people from their sins? Is he going to pursue the path of a mighty warrior conqueror and establish this militaristic kingdom, this geopolitical kingdom? And I think that's at the heart of all three of these temptations. That all three of these temptations are in some shape, form, or fashion, the temptation to bypass the cross, 
bypass the role of a suffering servant, bypass going to the cross and dying for the sins of his people, adopt the role of king by skipping over the role of servant. That's the temptation in in three different angles. That's the basic temptation. Bypass the role of a servant and fast forward straight to the role of a king. Skip the crockpot approach. Take the microwave approach. Jump to it. Get to it in your own way. The problem is, if, if he goes straight to the kingdom, he avoids the cross. And if he avoids the cross, he avoids saving sinners. And Matthew's already made it very clear that that's the primary mission objective. The kingdom is coming. It will come. And there's going to be great fanfare and and all is going to be well in the end. No doubt about it. But the New Testament tells us we're not there yet. The substitute must go the way of the cross. And I think the, the biggest takeaway here is how Jesus overcomes these temptations. He's doing it for us. He is our sympathetic substitute But secondarily, yes, this is a good example of how to face temptation in our own lives. And what does he do all three times? It is written. It is written. It is written. And he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8. And he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. And you get the sense that here is Jesus, a man who has been spending a lot of time in his Old Testament a man who's been reading devotionally the book of Deuteronomy enough to have it memorized and to quote it. And he's giving scripture back to the temptations of life. He's giving scripture back to the devil himself. This Holy Spirit that came upon him at his baptism is taking the word as Jesus reads the word and memorizes the word and then quotes the word back to Satan. Friends, that is true spiritual warfare. That's true spiritual warfare. I I get so frustrated with this whole demon behind and every toaster kind of approach to spiritual warfare and this sensationalistic, I've got to go cast out demons and exercise demons. That's not spiritual warfare. That's um, clown behavior. Spiritual warfare is when you are in the trenches of life and temptation is coming and hardships are coming and difficulties are coming and pains are coming and you take out the sword of the Spirit and you quote it and you believe it and you trust it and you put your faith in it. That's spiritual warfare. And that's what Jesus is doing here in spirit. And he's doing it not just as a pattern for us. It is a pattern for us, but I want to just keep coming back to he's doing it for us. Because again, as the New Testament unfolds, what we'll see is this great exchange. We get the credit for his perfect righteousness. We get the credit for his perfect obedience. That's right at the heart of the message of the gospel. You don't have to do anything. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. You can't obey your way into the kingdom. That's the whole story of Israel. And then here's Jesus, the new Israel. That's the whole story of sin. Here's Jesus, 
becoming sin in our place and providing for us our righteousness. But I think the probably the best commentary on this is found in the book of Hebrews. And I want to spend just a few moments this morning looking at a couple of passages in Hebrews because I, I think it's the, the, the perfect principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 4, there's a wonderful verse of encouragement, a wonderful verse of comfort. Hebrews 4.15, I know most of you are familiar with it. But this is a commentary of the temptation of Jesus. Hebrews 4.15, the writer tells us this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's the million dollar idea of the day. That staggering concept, that staggering truth that God had so much sympathy for you. Put your name in the blank. So much sympathy for you in the back there. You over here. You, 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 me. So much sympathy that he came to your aid and he took on a body and he took on a human soul and he took on a human mind and he took on human emotions and he took on human weaknesses and he took on all the, the sufferings and muck that comes with being a human being in a fallen world. He took it all on himself. And the writer of Hebrews says, he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because in every respect, let that sink in for a second, every respect, every respect, he has been tempted as we are. Now somebody's going to say, wait a second. There's no way Jesus has experienced every single temptation that we do. He didn't have the internet. He didn't have social media. He didn't have technology that brings all kinds of new questions and temptations into human experience. That's not what the writer's saying. He's saying in his first century context, Jesus experienced the universal range of temptations that will be common to every human being in every single age and stage of life and history. You can call it different things. You can present it different ways. You can tempt with different technologies, whatever. Sin is still sin. Temptation is still temptation and suffering is still suffering. He experienced every type of temptation, every type of difficulty and suffering. And in fact, and I think this is so important, his temptations 
His sufferings were greater than any you will ever experience. That is key. What do I mean by that? Well, think about it. Jesus's temptations were a lot greater and broader than ours because number one, the stakes were so high. And number two, because he never gave in. There's a great quote by C.S. Lewis in, in Mere Christianity speaking to this. Lewis wrote this to this question. Isn't, isn't Jesus's temptations, aren't his temptations easier for him because he was God? He was God. He never sinned. Lewis said this, Bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist, end quote. Think about that. Jesus knows the depths of pain and sorrow and temptation to a degree that we will never know them because he did not sin. When we were tempted... And we resist temptation and we're in the throes of spiritual warfare. We're quoting scripture. We're praying for God, praying for the Holy Spirit. At some point we break. Everybody has their breaking point. Every fallen human being has their breaking point. And when you break, that's like an escape hatch. Okay, you broke me. I can't take any more temptation. I can't, I succumb. But not Jesus. He had no limitation. Because he was sinless. He took the full extent. Anything Satan could throw at him, he threw it, then some, plus some, and the kitchen sink. And Jesus doesn't break. Jesus doesn't succumb. Jesus doesn't give in. Jesus doesn't sin. He takes it and he takes it to the fullest and no human being has ever taken or experienced that degree of temptation. We couldn't. And the writer of Hebrews here says he was tempted in every way that we were, in verse 15, yet without sin. So I want you to think about that this morning. In Jesus Christ, we have a sympathetic substitute who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows every danger. He knows every toil. He knows every snare. He knows every temptation. He knows every trial. He knows every situation that's ever come your way, that ever will come your way, because he's been there and he's experienced it himself. He knew what it was like to have no place to lay his head. He knew what it was like to tremble with grief. He knew what it was like to sweat drops of blood. I don't know what that's like. I don't want to know what that's like. I'm glad I have a Savior who did that for me. He knew what it was like to be under severe anxiety and stress and pressure. He knew what it was like to be scared. He knew what it was like to be lonely. 
He knew what it was like to be despised and rejected and mocked and insulted and beaten and lied about. He knew what it was like to have not a friend in this world to be abandoned. He knew what it was like to go through the most severe testing and sorrow in every circumstance that a person can face. He knows it. He's sympathetic to it. And not only that, he bore the weight of the full wrath of God for you. He hung on a cross and was cast out, abandoned, forsaken, descended into hell, excommunicated, whatever you want to call it. The full wrath of God for you. That's a sympathetic savior. If you want sympathy, if you want empathy, if you want somebody that cares, you want somebody that loves you and knows what you're going through, whatever it is, you don't have to go anywhere else. It's provided. It's right here. It's Jesus Christ. And look what he says in our passage in Hebrews. Because of this, because we have a sympathetic substitute. Because we have one who was in every way tempted yet is without sin. There's an invitation. Verse 16. Because of this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time and help, grace to help in time of need. That's an invitation. That's an invitation to come to this Savior, to pray to this Savior, to receive this Savior. Come with confidence, he says. That's a, that's a freeness. That's an openness. The idea is this is a Savior that you can come to with full assurance, full openness, full freeness. You can't conceal anything and you don't have to conceal anything. Just pour it out on Him. Give it to Him. He came to take it. And do it with confidence. Open your heart and speak to Him. Anytime, day or night. And he'll hear you and he'll love you and he'll support you and he'll strengthen you. And look what it says. He will give you mercy and grace and help in the time of need. Have you failed? Come to Jesus. Will you fail again? Come to Jesus. He will give you mercy and he will give you grace because he is full of compassion. Look at Hebrews 2.18. another precious promise because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted we can come confidently and openly to the throne of grace 
and find mercy and help that is perfectly appropriate for the situation. What else could you possibly hope for? Acting on our behalf during the 40 days of temptation, Jesus perfectly obeyed to the nth degree, following the Holy Spirit, quoting the Word of God. And here we are 2,000 years later, and the invitation is still come to me and find grace, help, and mercy. I've done it for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the rest that is offered in the gospel. And we thank you for the perfect obedience and righteousness that is offered in Jesus Christ, our sympathetic substitute. Lord, would you please help us take these words to heart and to be comforted? And we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing our closing hymn of response, hymn number 715.